You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Today I had the pleasure of speaking to the fabulous Dr. Lauren Morheim. Lauren is a clinical psychologist in LA. She has a practice called Eating Disorder Therapy LA. She specializes in providing evidence-based cognitive behavioral psychotherapy for a variety of problems that might be experienced by an adult. These include things like depression and anxiety and stress, but she also is known for her work in the eating disorder community and helping people with eating disorders. I'm delighted to be able to speak to Lauren. I cannot tell you how much I value this woman's opinion. The topic that Lauren and I are discussing today is adults with eating disorders. It's a topic that's close to my heart because I had onset age 17, so would be classed as an adult with an eating disorder. Here's the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Hello. Hello, Lauren. It's Tabitha. Hi, Tabitha. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, lovely Saturday morning here. How is it where you are? It's nice, yeah. The first question that I asked Lauren was what she thought were the biggest obstacles for adult sufferers when it comes to accessing treatment options. Well, there are certainly a lot of barriers to accessing treatment. Um, I think the financial uh, cost of treatment is a huge barrier. Um, Getting insurance coverage, having to take time off work for treatment is a big barrier and it's hard to find uh, specialists in outpatient settings to provide treatment. Um, There's also a huge stigma around eating disorders which I think makes many people reluctant to seek help. Right, so lots of barriers in there and the financial one especially, I mean that can that can be a huge problem for parents who, who have a child with an eating disorder, let alone an, an adult that um, has an eating disorder and therefore has to sort of try and um, manage their own lives, their own work lives, and, and paying for treatment as well. Right, and if they have to um, stay in their jobs to keep their health insurance, um, you know, then it's hard to take time off work to get the treatment. It's, you know... Yeah, and then we have the whole health insurance problem over here of, and actually in the UK as well, I think, of some um, insurance companies not recognizing uh, or, or wanting to treat eating disorders. Right. Um, so just to give those of you that are listening a little bit more context, I published a blog about two weeks ago now, and the blog was a conversation that I had had via email with a reader who had had onset of anorexia postmenopausal. And so that sparked the question um, that I next asked Lauren, has she had any experience with people coming to her clinic who have had postmenopausal onset of anorexia? In my practice, I have not. Most of the older clients I have worked with have suffered, um, you know, since much earlier. Um, Generally, they've suffered pretty continually. Some um, have had episodic eating disorders since adolescence. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I I do know that there there are, you know, many people who do have late-onset eating disorders. And... um, you know, I think it's a, a myth that eating disorders only affect adolescent girls, and uh, 
it's only been more recently that we are discovering eating disorders in men and younger children and in older people as well. Yes, we cannot say this enough at the moment. Eating disorders happen in men, they happen in younger children, and they happen in older adults as well. It is not just teenage girls. I, I think that um, speaking to the, the lady that I spoke to, um, she, she's suspicious that she might have actually had an eating disorder or, or at least signs and symptoms of one much earlier on. Um, so it could be that it, it, was, it was present in her life before her menopause. Yeah, I mean, I think of, you know, my understanding is that of people with postmenopausal eating disorders, there are those who suffered continually since adolescence, those who had a previous bout and recovered and then have a relapse after menopause. There's some who've had maybe subclinical issues um, that finally become full-blown after menopause. And then there's some with no prior eating disorder and full onset after menopause. So, you know, it could be any of those paths. Right, and do you, do you think that menopause could be considered a trigger for some people? Um, you know, I, I'm not a researcher, but um, from what I've read, I, I believe it can. Um, you know, there's um, new research about the impact of hormone changes on, um, uh, you know, precipitating eating disorders, and we definitely see that in adolescence, and so it would make sense that we might also see that in menopause. Um, plus, there are a lot of um, life changes that occur around menopause, um, so those could also, you know, any of those factors could be precipitants. Yeah. One thing that um, a couple of the people that emailed me had in common was that they felt really isolated, lack of friends and family. Um, not, not to say they didn't have friends and family, they did, but they didn't have friends and family that really understood um, what an eating disorder was. And is this the stigma was even larger for these populations, older populations of people than it is for um, people, say, under the age of, of 40 um, these days. Um, what do you think are the differences in, in these dynamics for adult sufferers? Well, again, I think because there's so many myths around eating disorders, um, there's, you know, huge stigma um, and a lot of shame around eating disorders. And, um, you know, so most people don't understand um, that eating disorders do affect people of all ages. So I think there's a, um, you know, perhaps an impatience um, that people have for older people who suffer for eating disorders and a lack of understanding. One lady, she was saying that, you know, one good friend of hers just absolutely refused to even acknowledge that her eating disorder was there. She wouldn't talk to her about it. And she just, I guess the woman didn't know how to cope with it and, and therefore just just completely blocked it out as if it wasn't happening. Right. Well, we also know that um, anosognosia is common. So, um, you know, which means that people with eating disorders often um, aren't aware that there's a problem. Um, so it may not even be deliberate hiding. Um, you know, it may be a symptom of the disorder. 
I just want to break in here with a note for those of you that think, well, how could that possibly happen? How could somebody not know that they have an eating disorder? I didn't know that I had an eating disorder for a good seven years. Um, but yes, there's so much shame. And I think there's even greater shame um, among adult sufferers of eating disorders. So it's hard to um, share the problem with friends and family. Yeah, um, I definitely experienced that as well. I, um, I had a couple of friends that just couldn't even, even when I had come through and I was at a place where I could talk about it. And even now they, they just can't even recognize that I had an eating disorder or talk to me about it. It's like their own shame is there, even though I'm like, Hey, like this is nothing, this is not something that I have to be ashamed of. It's, it's really, it's sad. Um, but I'm hoping that we're, we're working to, to get around that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of education that needs to be happen that needs to happen for the general public to have a better understanding of eating disorders. Yeah, and um, it makes it harder for sufferers and families to deal with. Yeah. Um, so talking about dealing with them, so family-based therapy, we know that it has proven to be effective for teenage and child sufferers. Um, I took elements of family-based therapy and that's actually how I recovered because um, at the time that I was trying to recover I, I didn't really have and I didn't know the support that I could have got um, and I sort of self-treated but it was via learning about family-based therapy so um, where do you think that's going what do you think that um, we can take this this knowledge what we know from FBT um, and put it into treating adult sufferers well, first of all, what aspects of FBT did you use? Um, I so I my I got on Feast's website actually. That's that the first that was the first thing I found. Another note for those of you that might not be familiar: Feast stands for Families Empowered and Supporting Treatment of Eating Disorders. It's, it's a wonderful resource. I will link to it in the show notes. I was just reading this website, and I was reading the. Um, the parents forum and and how they were sort of they were force feeding pretty much their children making them sit down and eat and that's the role that they had to play and what i really did is i put part of my brain every meal time into being that parent and i just I, I i listened to the or i read the words that these parents on the forum the lines that they were saying to their children like you're not leave moving until you eat life stops until you eat and all of those and i just kept playing those over in my own head and wouldn't let myself leave the table until i'd eaten so that's that's what i did it worked for me <laughs> it takes a lot of time to do that yeah, it, I'm not gonna. It, it worked for me. It wasn't easy. I I'm, and I don't. And it definitely wasn't ideal. You know, because I had to be incredibly determined. Um, and and I was, but you know, I'd been very unhappy and had had an eating disorder for ten years and was at the point where I was like, I'm gonna beat this or I'm gonna die. It's one or the other. So that was my determination. Getting to that point was horrible and, you know, absolutely not ideal um, that somebody should have to self-treat themselves. Um, but that's how it worked for me. So, and I'm, I'm a massive fan of FPT. I really wish that I had been able to go somewhere and had someone else say those words to me and not had to try and do it myself. Um, but anyway, so that's my story, but... Great, great insight. And um, I, um, I'm a huge fan of FPT as well. Um, and 
um, I have rethought a lot of my work with adults as well after having my FBT training. So I do think there is a lot we can take away. I think, um, you know, the, the, the first, you know, thing is that families can um, really be helpful um, in a majority of cases to people in treatment and um, doesn't mean that every family um, could or should be doing full uh, family-based treatment, but um, I think by and large families can be supportive. Um, I think in many cases they don't know how to be supportive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I'm really a, a fan of encouraging people to bring um, you know family members into treatment. I often meet with spouses and partners and. Um, boyfriends and mothers, um, you know, even if it's just for one session. Um, I think that, um, you know, for the most part, family members want to be helpful, but they don't know how to be. So I really like to open that conversation where, you know, the adult in treatment can ask their loved one um, for, you know, ways that they can be supportive. Um, and, um that, um, you know, a, a chance to educate the family member on what is going on and especially about, you know, anxiety during mealtimes. The education part and um, the sort of understanding, I think, that walking away from that um, plate of food, walking away from that mealtime without having finished it is, is, is failure in then the eating disorders one. And I know that for myself that once I had that set in my head, it didn't matter how long it took me. And I, I would sit at that table and I would get up and I would walk away. But then that thought would come back into my head. You have failed unless you eat it. And it would make me sit back down and try again. And I think that if a parent or a boyfriend or someone else can understand that, that that's how to be the most helpful, then that, you know, as difficult as it is, because there's tantrums and there's <laughs> shouting and it's horrible but as difficult as it is I think it will help them play that role and just be that barrier you have to do this I, sort of thing yeah so so the family education and then I think the other thing we really learn from FBT is the importance and the centrality of um, meals and nutrition but also meals as a um, you know as a uh, like a um, as a new learning um, environment. So people with eating disorders typically have huge anxiety around meals and um, it's very hard to interrupt ingrained behaviors and I think you're an anomaly um, to be able to um, have that dialogue in your own head and um, I'm a huge fan of meal support and of you know, and, and in fact, I think there's a greater recognition in the field now about meal support because there are many more dietitians um, providing meal support services. Um, there's, you know, some... Um, so, Lauren, can, some... You, can you elaborate on meal support? Like, how would that work? What would that look like? Well, again, I think it's tailored to the individual, but because some, uh, you know, sufferers typically have so much anxiety around meals that... Um, you know, it's hard when you have a phobia of something to face it, and the, the natural instinct is to avoid. Um, so if you're fearful of food, um, it, you know, it's facing that intense anxiety six times a day and eating foods that literally scare you. And when I talk to parents, I say, you know, 
each meal for your child is like they're being asked to jump out of a plane. So when anxiety is that high, it's very hard for an individual to, um, to get themselves to each meal and to eat the foods that they need to eat. So, you know, um, in FBT, we have parents do everything, um, you know, from choose the foods, plate the foods, um, you know, and sit there through the meal. But I think, you know, many adults don't need necessarily full, um, you know, supervision and support by parents, but just having um, someone to eat meals with, to sit there with them, um, you know, whether it's a, a dietitian or a friend or a family member. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that one of the things that um, adult sufferers can try to do is be creative, try to, um, you know, get more help with meals. Yeah, I was actually, just as you said that, I was thinking, I wonder if there's some, some room in there for some sort of technology or um, um, virtual reality sort of help for, for that sort of thing in the future. Um, well, I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes Feast provides you know, support for parents and you were able to use the fee support. Um, and I do know that there's at least some moms who've done, you know, online group support for, um, a sufferer. So, so maybe that is something that can be developed. I, it was invaluable to me that that forum and just being able to read how parents were doing it and sort of knowing, okay, I have to be the parent. And, you know, I, I, I think also for parents and for caregivers and in the adult suffer, even for friends or spouses of someone that's going through it, just to be able to, to, see, to see other people's stories and how what's working for them is just fab fabulous. Um, so another um, problem that I have come across in, in emails from, from other people, you know, I never went into inpatient treatment myself, um, but... I've had a lot of correspondence with people that have and that have gone into some sort of inpatient treatment and it's been it's saved their lives you know but the problem being that they've then reached what is considered to be a critical weight gain and um you know their their weight's gone up and they're considered to be in a safe place as far as that's concerned and they've been discharged and sent home without any help for when they get home and then as as you know relapse is really high um what do you think that that people in this situation people that have been into inpatient and then been sort of kicked out can do for themselves without the presence of a supportive family to stay on track it's really hard um well i mean i think the first thing is to realize that no one gets enough time in inpatient or residential levels of care because insurance is, um, you know, concerned with cutting costs and they're dictating the length of stay. So, so no one gets to stay as long as would be ideal. Um, in addition to weight gain, we're, we're talking about changing really entrenched behaviors and, um, you know, that takes time, um, especially when there's so much anxiety. Um, so I think, you know, the first thing is to realize that, you know, when you come out of residential, um, one is not recovered. One is really only starting the recovery process. Yes. Um, yes. and that, you know, every transition, you know, recovery skills are, I think of them as learned behaviors and 
Um, in many cases, they're setting specific. So if you learn recovery behaviors in the hospital, that's not necessarily going to be the same as learning them in your home environment. So every transition is really rough, and it takes practice to learn um, behaviors in each new setting. The, the, those recovery skills don't just generalize. So um, I think, you know, planning, um, you know, and setting expectations that, you know, when you first come out of residential, it's, you know, it's like you're in recovery 101. And um, you really have to be careful about constructing a um, recovery environment um, and, you know, getting that meal support and um, not setting yourself up for challenges that you're not ready for. Um, you know, it's really best to go gradually. So, you know, if eating, um, if you're working on eating meals at home, um, that may be, you know, what you need to work on. You may need to get support um, and focus on that before you go to, you know, harder challenges like, you know, traveling or, you know, um, big buffets at, at um, you know, hotels. Um, those are kind of like, um, you know, higher level challenges. And um, I think, you know, people think, oh, I'm out of residential, I'm recovered. Um, and they don't realize that it's really a, a process and that it, you know, it can take years to really work through recovery. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more there, Lauren. I um, I think I, I was two, two years into what I considered recovery, pretty full recovery. And and I went on holiday, I went on a vacation for the first time um, since I'd really been recovered. And I was absolutely unprepared for how much that would kick me. Uh, you know, that was the closest I've come to relapse because I was just in a strange place. I didn't have um, the foods and the, you know, my house and it was, you know, all over the place, crazy schedule because you're on holiday. And um that really taught me like every situation, every new situation, that's, it's a different learning and I have to be on the lookout, like even now, always on the lookout. Yeah, okay. I think the plan is um, a really important skill, um, you know, whether it's planning your day-to-day -day meals and, you know, um, you know, shop, food shopping, planning, um, that's really important. And then planning for you know, what lies ahead? Like, what are the challenges, you know, next week? What are the challenges, you know, when I go back to work? What is, you know, and really thinking through, ideally with the treatment team, um, but if that's not available, um, you know, really planning for each situation because it's challenging. Yeah, I, I've worked yeah. a plan before um, with my husband, you know, um, and, and that's, that's been really helpful as well, just having another person saying, okay, right, we're going to this place and it's gonna be a bit like this. This is what you need to watch out if you see me doing these things, you need to tell me this. And you know, then I know that if he says that, that I'm, I need to change something, that I'm, I'm obviously stressed and um, just you know, having someone else watch out for any signs in my behavior that could be danger signs, I guess. Exactly, and, and letting him know, you know, which situations are challenging for you so he knows that he can check in with you. Yeah. Um, Lauren, if an adult sufferer is feeling isolated and alone, um, what, do you, what, can you, what can they do to gain support? Do you have any um, recommendations for resources? Um, you know, I know that there's, um, there are definitely resources for adult sufferers. Um, uh, maybe not as many as we would hope. Um, 
There is a support group, um, a Facebook support group for adult sufferers called Aspire, um, Adults Supporting Peers in Recovery from Eating Disorders, um, that's moderated and it's definitely pro-recovery. Um, there are, um, you know, podcasts um, such as this and, um, you know, some other really good ones. Um, Recovery Warriors also has um, a podcast and all kinds of resources. Um, the National Eating Disorder Association has some, um, has, uh, provides online support and they also have some uh, forums on their website. And Feast, um, you know, <laughs> provided support for you. So yeah. um, that, would, that would help adult sufferers as well. Thank you, Lauren. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, where can people find out more about you, about your practice, and um, let us know your Twitter handle as well, please. Okay. Um, so, yeah, my practice is in Los Angeles, and it's called Eating Disorder Therapy LA. And um, you can uh, Google that, and uh, that's the website. And um, I also uh, do some blogging on that website, and I also um, do, I am the eating disorders expert for Very Well, which is the health um, brand for about.com, and I have a lot of um, articles there that are um, specifically recovery-focused um, that could be um, helpful to uh, adults in recovery. And my Twitter handle is, um, Dr. Morheim. Dr. Morheim is a complete rock star in the world of eating disorders. I recommend that you follow her on Twitter because she has a very finger on the pulse approach to um, the latest research and she's always sharing very insightful information. Everything that was mentioned in this podcast is available in the show notes it's linked to so dr morheim's website her twitter handle and all of the resources that we mentioned in the show like feast and aspire you can go to the episode on my website and they will all be linked to in the show notes of this podcast episode so yay that's my first podcast if you have any ideas of topics that you would like me to cover, then do not hesitate to get in touch. You can get in touch with me on my website or on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at love underscore fat underscore. I want to hear from you. I want to talk about things that you want to listen to. And if you want to be interviewed, then great, get in touch with me as well. We'll have you on the show. Thanks for listening. Bye. I'm terribly serious when I do podcasts, aren't I? Can you believe that I can get through a whole half hour without swearing? <laughs>